to Radius of Reason, episode three, Devon. What's going on? Uh, you know, not a whole lot. What are we doing here? We are pondering the meaning of life. And the purpose that's derived from work. Yes. I cannot imagine a more Protestant topic for episode three <laughs> of Radius of Reason. The Protestant work ethic, baby. It's so, back. So how do you define meaning? Um, the meaning of life itself. How do you, how do you define that? Well, as a good American Protestant, I would say the meaning of life itself is to toil, is to labor, is to contribute to the economy, to pay my taxes. Okay, now the, the non-delusional definition. Life has no meaning. <laughs> we, we have to generate meaning for ourselves. Everybody has their own definition of it, probably. I imagine some people derive meaning from raising families. Some people derive meaning from playing sports, coaching sports. I don't think it's a, it's a universal type of thing. It's, it's a little difficult to answer that question with a blanket term. I think the meaning of life is probably the pursuit of meaning. Interesting. What do you think, Devon? I don't know. We're going to discuss that today. We're going to find out. Uh, I don't want to spoil it. Spoiler alert. So do you think we have more or less meaning in our lives than, say, 100 years ago? I would say that this is something that there are various points of discussion to, especially as people are... I think collectively discussing this, this is a topic that a lot of people are concerned with and interested in. I think as we've become really conscious of the direction in which our economy has shifted during the pandemic, when we realize that a huge portion of work could be done from home, that in itself already raises questions about, you know, is the work we're doing meaningful? And if we're, as a country, embracing the Protestant work ethic and deriving meaning from work, then is our life now meaningless? So to answer your question, if we look at it from a professional standpoint, I think probably, yeah, we have less meaning in life because the work that we're doing is less immediately impactful. Because really, what is the work that we're doing? And for context, I think it's it's a great point of discussion here because we have Levan, who's a software engineer with a technical background, and me with my soft humanitarian background working in a marketing agency, which they're probably two completely different interpretations of how those two companies derive meaning and bring meaning to the economy. Um, but long-winded answer, I think we have less meaning in our lives now than we did maybe. What was your time parameter? Uh, I said a, a century ago. A century? Oh, yeah, definitely. Less meaning. Okay. And now what about 20, 30, 40, 50,000 years ago? Yeah, probably less meaning. I think that meaning for a very long time, you know, when we were discussing this off mic, you know, we talked about the animal kingdom, right? And I think I raised the question of like, what meaning does a raccoon bring? And really, I imagine the raccoon, God, I'm thinking from the standpoint of a raccoon now, but it's the point of survival, right? I imagine animals derive meaning because they have to survive. They have to find meals. They have to reproduce. And the closer we were to our primal state, I think the, the meaning it was easier to answer that question, right? You asked me that question just now, what did I do? I hesitated because it's difficult to find meaning when a lot of the primal bases have been covered. We have food, we have shelter. For all intents and purposes in this country, on this continent, it's a stable source of food and shelter, at least for a percentage of society, which, you know, it's it's decreasing given the homeless crisis and all of that. But I think in a, in a post-industrial society, meaning is a lot harder to find because we are no longer immediately responsible for food sources. We're not hunting for our food. Oh my gosh, I'm f- taking the fucking Rogan spin on this. <laughs> but 
I think that, yes, we have less direct meaning in our lives now than maybe 50,000 years ago because we actually actively have to find meaning and pursue meaning as opposed to having a primal source for, for, for meaning as it is given to us. Well put. Now, Levon, what do you think? Oh, the podcast is over. We've... We're done. We're done. <laughs> we covered all the bases. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree. I think, uh, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, we've evolved to, um, you know, obtain food, reproduce, find shelter, just survive, period. And that by default gives you tremendous meaning, right? If, if you're in a small tribe with like 50 people, right, back in the day, what is more meaningful than going out on a hunt and and bringing a a, a a buffalo back to your tribe, right? Like, you just potentially saved everyone's life, including your own. Like, right. what is more meaningful than that? Now, you compare that to what we do today. You go to the office, you open up Microsoft Excel, and then you go home. Do hard drugs and go to sleep. Potentially do hard <laughs> Or, I mean, everything's a drug, really. I mean, if right. you think about it, if you're eating uh, chips. High fructose corn syrup. Oreos. Yeah. I mean, that is super normal stimuli. That's, you know, in terms of the concentration of fat, sugar, salt, right? So, like, we are constantly drugging ourselves to achieve something to say nothing for the yeah. dopamine releases we pursue from smartphone usage and social media pornography pornography um you know we harp on joe rogan a lot when we talk but i think a lot of his like quote-unquote you know super masculine cooking meat over an open fire it does kind of embody something that i've been thinking about and i know we've talked about it before where you know, if you look at rates of depression on a global scale, right? Maybe it's just we're talking about it openly now, which is a, maybe a perk of the level of civilization we're at, where we can openly discuss mental health. And I think our generation's been especially good at that. But let's say rates of depression are higher. Um, prescriptions of antidepressants are higher, which again, there may be other, you know, marketing related reasons for that. But we've kind of lost this connection to the roots of the fact that we are living things. And then at one point we were defined by a pursuit for survival right that's why they, you know people always say like oh when i go hiking i always come back feeling so much better right you're outdoors you're breathing you're you're walking you, you're you know open in your surroundings and seeing the world around you but in a kind of a in a, in a post-industrial lifestyle where i remember especially like during the, the height of the pandemic i wouldn't leave my apartment for like days on end you know so what kind of meaning is that right if i'm sitting in my apartment I'm doing all of my professional tasks seated over a laptop. I, you know, I, I, I don't move my limbs around. You know, I'm certainly not running away from Panthers. So, yeah, where's the meaning in that? So maybe that's kind of why we have all these, you know, one mental health crisis after another. And there's clearly something wrong, right? Yeah, and I do want to highlight something before we get too deep into this. Um, if you look at the work by Steven Pinker, right, in... <laughs> <laughs> in enlightenment now he has a great book which i have actually in my hand um, we actually have steven pinker here with us today his his soul and spirit is with us man today. that bookmark has not moved at all since last time so. <laughs> <laughs> i've moved on to better books but i mean he, he makes a case you know how much there was on meaning but i think 
he has data on happiness and we're actually more happy than we were say a hundred years ago and that's because you know in terms of work we have more free time we work less hours you know there's just higher standards uh in the workplace um you know in addition to all the you know technological advancements that we've had as a society that has eased things for us so there there is a there's a connection to happiness and meaning but they're not the same thing and if if you look at the data we are actually happier than we were at least when you compare us to like you know uh, a century or two ago interesting now does that necessarily tr- we don't have data for 50,000 years ago uh, but i imagine you know with predators and diseases and i mean I don't know, just not even having proper shelter, you know, when it gets cold, like how happy were they? They, they, they may have had meaningful lives, but were they happy? But I mean, so, but this is kind of uh, maybe to catch you on a, on a rhetorical loop. Are you inherently equating meaning with happiness? No, I'm not. Interesting. No, I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make the point that they are in fact different. Hmm. Um, but it's hard to say that one can be as happy as possible or maximally happy without having a meaningful life, right? So, like, it, to me, it almost puts a stain on your happiness if you don't quite have the meaning in addition to your life, right? Um, you know, you, you could be, let's say you're a guy and that you're just a sex addict and then you you know you have sex with all the the prettiest women you could have a very happy life but when you reflect on it you can be like man like all i did was sleep with women and like yeah that was very pleasurable but like i have no meaning like i i don't know i don't really feel like fulfilled i don't feel you know you know what i mean like i didn't really have a purpose i just did some stuff and then was I able to in any way transcend like my basic instincts as a human being, as a homo sapien? And like failure to do so, failure to transcend those very primal instincts, maybe that is what in this day and age can cause a lack of meaning. Um, just throwing that out there, I don't know. But, you know, looking ahead, Will the advent of AI and robots, you know, replacing humans in the workplace, do you think that's going to add more or less meaning to our lives? Do you think that's going to allow for the possibility of more meaning or are we going to have even less to contribute to society? And if, you know, you think as, as a citizen, the less you're contributing to society, the more you're on your phone scrolling through mm-hmm. TikTok or Instagram. Mm-hmm. That to me seems like, you know, at least one interpretation is you're going down a less meaningful route. On the other hand, maybe you can say, we'll have the time, you know, maybe AI will free us up to pursue the arts, to pursue things that we really want to do that can really transcend our, you know, most, uh, most basic instincts as human beings and, and give us like this new layer of meaning. I, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? I mean, I think that that's kind of the greater question of, are we going to be in a tech utopia or not? 
with the integration of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And I, I think the answer to your question is, is largely dependent on how we structure our society going forward. Because if we keep things as they are, where, you know, in our current economic arrangement, it's very profit driven, it's very extractive. Artificial employed, maybe less as a, and it is being deployed because this is something that's really much happening right now. It's going to be deployed less as like a, of an, of an augmentation to our work experience as opposed to a replacement. And let's say if we price out, I don't know, let, let's look at an industry that people talk a lot about. I think long haul trucking will be the one that's impacted pretty soon with autonomous driving and whatnot. And from what I remember, Andrew Yang's campaign in 2020 was very much focused on the, the logistics industry as one that is at risk of being automated out of existence, right? So if we change nothing else and all we do is insert AI and automation into a workforce and, and reduce the, the professional need for certain positions and certain individuals without having anything else change in our society to accommodate for that, that's not going to be a tech utopia. That's not going to be, you know, 12, 20, I don't know how many truckers there are, like a couple hundred thousand workers that are all of a sudden going to turn to the arts and poetry and ballet because they're not, they're going to lose their source of income and there isn't going to be anything else to sustain that. So in fact, I imagine there's going to be, let's say, I don't think that this is a, an awkward, I think, point to, to agree on, but let's say in, the, in this current day and age, our purpose is very much driven by our capacity to work and to contribute to the economy. Even if we're not conscious of it, you know, if you look at rates of depression and people who are out of work, who are stressed out by the job hunt for the need to, to return to the workforce. I, I think if you price out a lot of people out of their workplace by the introduction of, of robotics, it's going to, in fact, decrease the amount of purpose and meaning they might feel because they will be out of the productive capacity. Now, let's say if our society evolves in tandem with that, right, where there is this kind of tech utopian ideal where machines will start doing the work for us so that we can actually focus on the humanities and the arts. And we have, let's say, free college programs or, or free education paths that individuals can take. Again, in this case study from the logistics industry, maybe that is going to increase more meaning, right? Where we can pursue higher ideals of uh, composing symphonies, painting, maybe focusing on the sciences, exploration, you know, studying our world. What happens when AI composes uh, more beautiful symphonies? Than, yeah. You know, which is already to some extent happening. Yeah, shit, man. I don't know. I've heard that AI Christmas Carol that, that was, was written by a computer. That, that's... Have you seen... Uh, okay, look, more <laughs> to like other art forms like um, images or painting... Yeah. Have, have you heard of Dolly, that AI? Uh, uh, I've read about it. I haven't seen any, any of its, it's creation. It's, I was looking at him the other night, and, and the images that it formulates based off, you know, you, you, you give it like a basic language right. input, is astonishing. Well, yeah, but that's truly really astonishing. That's also and getting into like the nature of what is creating art, right? Like, I mean, that's out of the immediate topic we're discussing, but, you know, even I, I imagine somebody who's painting even if their their painting is absolute shit, it is a level of gratification you get from creating something, right? I mean, creating art isn't necessarily about the end product. And again, you're thinking with your damn capitalist mindset, but you know, if I, if I get into ceramics, I'm not going to be the best pottery maker in the world, but I'm going to be creating pottery, which is going to be a gratifying feeling. You know, I took a block of clay, I spun it, I, I baked it, I painted it. 
that is my product that in fact is, is leaving me with a gratified experience. So yeah, AI can do all these things. But the question is, are we going to be, we're still pursuing meaning in a certain sense, right? So if my meaning is making shitty pottery, it still brings me joy, it still brings me happiness, then maybe the realities of me losing my trucking job aren't going to be as harsh if I have something else to channel my interest into. And I think, you know, the sciences, for instance, if you look at kind of the golden age of space exploration, where there's so much fascination with the universe and people were interested in, in, in taking astronomy courses and studying the heavens, or, I mean, think about how much we can learn about our own world, right? I mean, how many species of birds do you know in, in Kansas? I, I, don't, I don't know any. <laughs> and let's say if I had the time to stop and explore and learn about individual plants and, and you know, how ecosystems work, that, that's all meaning in its own right. Um, but again, to, to kind of circle back to your original point, I think that it's very much dependent on where our society goes, right? If we progress to a certain level where we can embrace AI and robotics and maybe take some of that profit and, and reinvest into our communities and our societies, I think there is a chance that we'll have higher levels of meaning, right? But if we're not going to do any of those sorts and kind of stick to this extractive path, I think we're actually headed towards, uh, comparably speaking, a much more meaningless existence. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's difficult to speculate. <laughs> what do you think? I uh, well, I, I, I'll speculate in a second, even though it's very difficult. <laughs> but I, I, I think one thing that one thing I've read about meaning is that it's very tied to the narratives that we build, the narratives that we tell ourselves, the narratives that we find ourselves in, mm -hmm. in our lives, whether that's a delusion or like a real objective narrative that's kind of unfolding. Um, I think there's also something to be said about suffering. And th there's a great book by Paul Bloom called The Sweet Spot, which shows the association uh, of suffering with with meaning and how chosen suffering in your life can actually add immense amount of meaning to it and the f the closer we get to whether you want to say tech utopia or dystopia i think it's it's almost certain things will be easier in terms of our basic needs right um food like food shelter even sex you know if you're going to have sex robots right if you're going to have i don't know some sort of some total recall sensory thing experience that you get yeah. into and it simulates a sexual experience like we're going to get all the all our needs are going to be taken care of in in, in a way that's going to be available like at our fingertips hmm. and it's going to be because of the capitalistic system, which I believe will still be in, I think it's going to become very cheap to access those things. Um, and so, okay, so the ability to suffer is going to be like, I mean, it's going to get harder and harder to suffer in a sense, right? To have like meaningful suffering <laughs> in your life. <laughs> and it's going to be harder to build a narrative, right? Like what narrative will a young male have if... They don't even have to pursue women. They don't have to pursue a family. They don't even have a desire to pursue a family because they're getting all their sexual fulfillment from a technological source, right? Um, 
there's nothing to build because there's no desire even, right? Because your desires are taken care of in this tech utopia. So what do you, what do you do when you need a narrative to have a meaningful life? You need something, some sort of purpose, but your desire to even create that yourself is completely diminished by the availability, the cheap, easy access to all the things that will fulfill your kind of biological imperatives. I feel like you're just describing a, what is it? Brave new world by Aldous Huxley. It's, it's kind of the, the scenario that his kind of portrayal of a dystopian future is, but yeah, maybe it was right. Maybe it was right, but I don't know. I think that we're kind of dealing with this right now to a certain extent where how much of a meaningful, I mean, if we're kind of, let's stick to the topic of like sexual relations, but how much of a meaningful experience do you get through technology? I mean, there is still very much the uncanny Valley, like even, you know, watching pornography, even if you have like the most like superior VR flesh like combination at the end of the day, you're not going to fool yourself into thinking that this is an actual genuine sexual experience. Right. And there's like a stark difference between like jerking it to porn and having sex with the real partner. Um, I, I, I don't know. Like the, yeah, the... I, I agree with you right now. I, I'm saying down the line, um, when it becomes more difficult to kind of discern the two realities, yeah, yeah, those two realities, um, you, you know, I mean, you, you could lack, you could, uh, I, I could still see people lacking meaning, although eventually even, you know, e even that can be addressed through may maybe technology addresses that through like some sort of virtual reality scenario where mm -hmm. you, you live, you enter this virtual reality and that provides you the meaning through the narratives that are kind of created by you yourself, created yeah. by, by what you maybe just choose on the screen or what the AI has decided is, is optimal for your personality type, you know, and then imagine the narratives that will be created in that scenario, right? Even greater than anything you could possibly conceive of in real life. I mean, what does that do? Right? Like then you start asking yourself, what's the difference between this virtual reality and, and real life? And, you know, if we were in a simulation, what's, what's the difference right between that? And if we were like really real, not simulated, I mean, like I, at some point, like yeah, it just becomes a mental cluster. But what if that does give meaning, right? I mean, if you look at your original question, like what gives life meaning today? What if my meaning is playing video games? I mean, I, I don't, I, I dabble occasionally. I'm not like really into video games, but like, what if I was like a really, really, really passionate gamer and I got a lot of joy out of really immersive story driven RPG games, right? And let's say my life is like a total wreck where, you know, I don't have any friends. I don't have any real hobbies, quote unquote, uh, my job sucks, but what if I derive a lot of joy and pleasure from this virtual experience that I know is a virtual experience, but I get what keeps me going is the, the prospect of, you know, let's say I work to buy the newest console, to buy the newest version of a game, to buy the newest DLC. And I think maybe we tend to frown upon that as a society, right? We tend to, maybe we're a little bit more accepting towards like gaming culture nowadays, but, you know, my knee-jerk reaction is like, oh, that's an inherently meaningless existence. But if somebody derives joy from that, that's a, that's a path towards meaning to a certain extent. So maybe to take it to your scenario, if everything is 
digitized and you can have this fully immersive virtual experience to simulate friendship, to simulate sex, to simulate purpose. And you know it's fake, but you still get meaning from diving into that world. Is that a meaningless experience? I don't think so. I think that could still be a level of meaning that you are bringing into your own life. Maybe not a traditional one. Maybe it's not building a house through hands and foraging for food and, and slaughtering the bison you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, but maybe that is like the, the future of it. Well, I mean, you're bringing up the point that, you know, meaning is inherently subjective. <laughs> I haven't, you know, maybe dug into as much as we should have early yeah. on. I think there are some objective features of meaning when it, you know, insofar as it relates to human beings, right. what human beings find a meaningful life. But, you know, if, even if it's a delusional meaning, it still counts as long as you believe the delusion, right? Mm-hmm. The moment you step out of that delusion, maybe that's when it hits you that, oh, shit, like me being plugged into this virtual reality, this is not, this is all. Like, if, if, if you were to really be immersed in it and, and kind of, become one, you know, with the self that you are in, in, in the virtual world, that's one thing. But will we ever be able to divorce ourselves from our, from our instincts, mm-hmm. you know, from our biological instincts and our awareness of like, oh, maybe this is like, this is not really real, right? Like this is, this is fake. I'm kind of like, are we going to get intelligent enough to the point where that's a blocker to deluding ourselves, mm. right? Because, I mean, it, it, to, to some extent, you know, we as a species are built on delusion, right? Yes. There's a great book that I just almost finished reading <laughs> called Denial, and it's about how human beings were able to kind of jump over the psychological barrier that a lot of other animals could not cross in terms of increasing in intelligence, right? Because if intelligence is a desirable trait uh, for, for, an, for any given animal, if it has so much utility, then why, why don't we see more animals that are as intelligent as humans? Why, why didn't dolphins or elephants or other primates involve, evolve mm-hmm. uh, to, to a level of similar or, or, or at least more intelligence where they have, uh, you know, sufficiently high level of theory of mind or, or whatever it is. Um, and, and, and the barrier that kept apparently a lot of these other animals, at least what this author proposes, is is the, the notion of death, becoming aware of your own mortality and what that does to evolution, right? You, you might be too scared to miss your life. Uh, in doing so or too scared to go find food because he's going to risk your life doing so or psychologically collapse because you're like holy shit like what is even going on I'm, I'm, I'm this being that exists in this crazy life we found the I guess the ability to delude ourselves to not really believe in death I mean even today if you think about it you don't really think about death too much if that was on the forefront of your mind it might really I don't know, like it, it might really change your priorities, right? Or it could be crippling. It could be crippling. Yeah. I, I think that ironic when I was younger, I used to think about death a lot. Um, and, and 
it was, it wasn't like an enlightening experience where I was like, Oh, you know, I could do anything. It was actually more numbing than anything where I was, I think it was paralyzing in, in, um, a lot of my decision-making when I was, when I was younger, that it was harder for me to make decisions and act on decisions because I had this like crippling fear of death and, and grappling with like what death even means. Right. Um, yeah. And, and I know that that's a common frame of reference for maybe what our prehistoric ancestors derived meaning from was this kind of like ever present concept of death. But I don't know if that's like a, enough of a driving force, really. I think that even if we all had like a memento mori moment, that doesn't necessarily mean we would be living life to its fullest, you know, living every day like it's your last. I mean, objectively speaking, I think there's a huge percentage of humanity. Maybe it's like a psychological type that when faced with death, you will not live out your, your, your greatest potential. You know, you will cower, you will, uh, you know, hide in a corner. You'll try to avoid it. And we all want to think that we're going to be like the, maybe like the hero complex, right? That we're going to be the ones that when faced with death, we're going to appreciate as much of life as possible before we pass away. But I don't know. I mean, I think about people who are diagnosed with terminal illnesses. That doesn't necessarily always result in living life to its fullest, living life to, you know, it's, and sometimes it does. Well, maybe because your realization of death is kind of, you, you are in still in, even though you recognize it rationally, you're still in denial to some extent and you create a delusion that prevents you from really, okay, from really saying, okay, if I'm going to die six months from now, like I need to live my life to the fullest. But if you've deluded yourself into not, really taking that in on a, uh, on a level that affects your daily activities, if you've kind of suppressed mm. this, this notion of death, then that would explain why you wouldn't take full advantage of your remaining time. And it, it just speaks to the level of delusion that humans can create for themselves and, and, and what utility that may have. And, and, you know, just to circle back to the original point about, uh, meaning it, it really comes down to like, what is the human capacity to delude ourselves? Because if you wake up from the delusion that this video game that you're playing or this virtual reality simulation that you're in, if that's fake, like if, if you, if you, let, let's say you actually woke up tomorrow mm -hmm. and you were in a doctor's office, you're like, what the hell happened? You're like, Oh, um, this is all like fake. Everything you've experienced has been a, a pure simulation. Like, do you want to get plugged back in or, you know, right. do you want to, do you want to enter the real world? Like, what would you, I don't know. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, would you, how, how would you feel about that? Well, I mean, I think that there'd be a lot of questions around what is the real world? Like, who are you in the real world? Which in itself is a point of curiosity. I mean, yeah, that's a great point. I, I, I think that, you know, first of all, what a shitty simulation it was. Like, I simulated being in, you know, student debt. And, and having to, <laughs> like, it wasn't like orgies and eating grapes off the vine. It was just like, I have to stress about things. And um, I mean, again, I think it's like that shit that Jordan Peterson always references where, you know, everybody when faced with the reality of the Holocaust, everybody would say that I would never participate in that. I would stand up to the Nazis, but it's, mm -hmm. 
you know, realistically speaking, majority of people would probably fall in line and, and do whatever they had to do to get by. I think it's a kind of a similar frame of reference to the question of like being unplugged in the doctor's chair, right? Everybody'd be like, no, I'm brave. I'm going to face what the reality is. I'm going to, but you know, the simulation we're escaping is very comfortable because it's what we know, or at least what we've deceived ourselves mm -hmm. into thinking that we know. Um, yeah, I don't know. But I mean, to, to, to your point of the, the death question is, is, is interesting to me because I think that, you know, I disagree with these like assertions that, that fleeting things are, are beautiful. Right. You know, that this whole, again, like the memento mori, yolo culture right that like live your life once because life is short life is beautiful but i, I don't know i think the fact that time is fleeting and everything's that's kind of sad right and that's not it's sad if you come to grips with it in full and and and, and you view it in a more rational way yeah it, it is right everything's gonna be i mean the whole universe eventually is gonna suffer what a heat or a heat death or a cold death or or whatever um and nothing will have right ultimately mattered because nothing's permanent right uh everything is futile but on the other hand if you can delude yourself then yolo is great like i mean why why does something have to be permanent to be meaningful right like it could still have meaning it's just still sad i guess is what you're saying but i think you actually ended up stumbling into the answer to the question of what is meaning i think the meaning of life is to maximize your delusions <laughs> but really i mean it, it's to distract yourself enough from even if you take away like the, the socioeconomic circumstances we're living in kind of set that aside but from the very real, very primal um, circumstances that we have, that we've always faced, right? You know, even to our ancestors, from your example of 50,000 years ago, there was always a delusion, right? The delusion that we are going to survive, and if I kill enough buffalo, I'll feed enough people, we're going to live a long time. That's, that's a delusion because inherently speaking, it's random. It, it, everything is random. And our ancestors from the... from all of history have have maintained a certain level of delusion. Maybe our delusion is a little bit more advanced now. I like I like where you're going with this quite a bit because it speaks to how you could have like let's say you have two scenarios, right? You have one uh, someone like Robin Williams who is this you know great actor, comedian, mm -hmm. wealthy, etc. But like, I mean, he killed himself. Right. Yeah, yeah. And and you think about like did he lack meaning in his life? Was he too aware of like what's this all for? Mm -hmm. I'm all just, you, you know what I'm saying? I mean, he could have had other issues. I actually don't know much about yeah, it. No. <laughs> but like but but you could have this scenario where someone seems to be living an objectively more meaningful or happier life and then you have the situation uh where you could have some dude in the Midwest working at an engineering firm who by all accounts is living an insanely boring life, going to the office, coming home, and then he just just with his wife, they just kind of solve puzzles when he gets home and they just walk <laughs> around the neighborhood and that's about it. That's, that's pretty, about it. pretty what 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 most people would consider a mundane 
life, but he has a delusion when he goes into work that he's doing really important work. I mean, to some extent, engineering is important, but he feels like he's doing critical work. He feels like he's a genius. He's deluded himself into thinking like um, he's doing profound work and he's super important to his community. Again, to some extent, these things are true if you're an engineer, but, you know, just run with the analogy for, or run with this hypothetical situation for a second. He's really given himself this grandiose delusion of, of what he's actually contributing to society, etc. And then he's also deluded himself into thinking his wife is the absolute, like, greatest woman. And this is also like, I don't know, uh, the person that he was destined to be with. This all, even if it's not objectively true, his his delusions have created a level of meaning that gives him a much more fulfilling life than someone say someone like like maybe Robin Williams or some some very wealthy person who is all too aware of the realities of of death, the reality of. Um, I don't know, just reality itself, like too aware of his own essence of being an, uh, an animal, of being just still one person in a society of seven, eight billion people, right? Like there's this matter of interpretation of, of, of how you view yourself and, how, and, the, and the narrative or the delusion that you've created for yourself. And it could also be, or you could have a negative delusion of reality, right? Like you could say, oh, what's the, you know, what's special about me? There's 8 billion of us on this planet. What's really special about my job? Anyone can do it. Like, why does any of this shit matter? Whatever. I'm just going to like, I don't know. Just going to fucking like give up. I, I don't know. Like that is, that could also be argued to be some sort of negative delusion where, you know, you're using subjective words and then like feeding into that story, right? Like, why is my life, um, why is it meaningful when there's 8 billion people and I'm doing it, you know, like, like, how do I have any real value? Like, I'm, I'm just an, an, another, you know, I don't know, pee in a pod. But I mean, I, I think you're hitting on an amazing amazing point here with this really good analogy made of like the the average midwestern engineer uh i i think that maybe the one differentiating factor in terms of how we interpret meaning from past generations is maybe a lot more of our meaning is outsourced and we and we we see our meaning through the eyes of others right where we might there's this constant notion of like what will the audience think what will the external party think you know this this individual in your example is, is going to work in an engineering firm and you know we we perceive him as, as meaningless because he's you kind of describe this sort of like very milk toast sort of existence down to like coming home from work and playing puzzles with his wife and there is this like critical audience that maybe we perceive as constantly judging our actions but what if that you know average one of the mill engineer doesn't give a fuck what if he's not 
worried about being the most important person in the world or being the most talented person in the world? What if he's really happy to drive to his office, to spend some time with his colleagues, to, I don't know what engineers do, like bang out some spreadsheets, <laughs> um, you know, what if he gets a tremendous amount of meaning from, from driving his shitty ass Toyota Corolla that's paid off, that's reliable. And he gets to spend time with his wife who's not abusive and they make puzzles together. Like what if there is in that normalcy that maybe in our hyper, um, in our world of social media and, and, and hyper awareness of everybody else and, and kind of in this structured, very cleansed, um, orderly images that people produce through LinkedIn. Uh, what if that is the only like true path to, you know, cause you sort of establish the binary of meaning versus happiness. Yeah. I mean, th this is something like a lot of philosophers have touched on. And this is also like kind of like the notion of like the hedonic treadmill, um, where the more, the more you have, the more you want. Yeah. Right. And, and in the same way, if you can be happy, if you can be happy with less, the richer you really are. Right. Right. And, and uh, I mean, unless you need, I mean, that, that's like really like kind of like the enlightenment that you, that, that you would reach. Right. Who was the but, Greek philosopher who like lived in a barrel and, and I'm not like sure. shit in the street. There's probably several, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you, you, you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Here. Um, I, I think some of that is down. It, it's hard to talk about these topics, like in an abstract sense, because the truth is, like, there is this concrete reality of some of this is down to personality type. Some personalities yeah. are just okay with less, right? Right. Like, if you're someone who also hasn't maybe been exposed to, you know, maybe you're not on social media for whatever reason. All this, um, all these different possibilities, right? If if you've been exposed to less, if you have a personality type that's okay with less, you have probably an easier time finding a, a more meaningful and happy existence than someone who's incredibly driven, who's incredibly conscientious, who's incredibly dissatisfied with anything less than the absolute best for himself, who's incredibly curious and aware of all the different possibilities. That is almost a rest for unhappiness, right? Mm -hmm. The more driven you are, the more you want the more difficult it is to attain and the more that you're going to want after you already attain, if you do manage to attain what you want, right? You get stuck in the hedonic treadmill. So I don't know, like, what do you, like, how, how do you, how do you divorce that though from human nature and the evolutionary purpose that sort of behavior serves, right? Because if you think about what evolution is about, it's not about your happiness. It's not about meaning. It is about simply reproduction. Survival, yeah. And if those <laughs> tendencies, if those tendencies make you unhappy, if they lead you to leave a less meaningful life, obviously evolution, we evolved under circumstances where you had meaning by virtue of completing tasks that were absolutely necessary for your survival. Now, you know, you can, it doesn't have anything to really say about modern day society and like what's, you know, it, it didn't evolve to make you miserable in the modern day society in terms of having no meaning because you've had your necessary um, biological uh, imperatives fulfilled, right? Um, but um, where was I going with this? <laughs> <laughs> it was a good tangent. 
I, I think the most interesting thing in, in what you've discussed is that there isn't really a control group nowadays. I mean, maybe there is. Maybe, maybe you know, that whole story of like Sentinel Island in the Indian Ocean where they've been completely uh, isolated from the rest of the world. Like they're still like very much on um, kind of like a tribal basis. They hunt like bows and arrows. They shoot down drones every time like one flies over the island. They, they killed that missionary mm-hmm. a couple of years back. Deservedly so. I mean, that guy is actually connected to, to our locality in, in an interesting way. We can talk about it later. But um, maybe that's the only like case study we have, like a control group, right? Because everybody's kind of living in the you know varying degrees of, of financial stability and whatnot. But we all kind of exist collectively in one like socioeconomic space. And I think maybe our interpretations of, of meaning are, are pretty aligned. You know, there, there's different economic circumstances. Some countries are richer than others. You know, you could talk about meaning and happiness to that extent. But largely speaking, most of us in the world are living in like a post-industrial um, civilization, right? Where we're not having to like hunt for food to survive and we're not having to like fight off like wolves and shit from our, you know, caves to, to, to protect our family. So like everybody's kind of caught in this constant trap of like pursuing meaning and trying to establish meaning in this like world that we exist in, in this time that we exist in, right? But there isn't really anything we could look at to be like, whoa, like, whoa, are they happier? Are they sadder than we are, right? And maybe someday we'll be able to study like the Sentinelese Islanders and see how they perceive happiness or sadness or something like that. But I mean, that would be fascinating. Yeah. That would absolutely be fascinating. I think, I mean, you know, if you go to like first principles, you know, if you think about things in terms of evolutionary frameworks, then you have to think that you have to think, I mean, kind of something consistent with what we've discussed here, where they would definitely have a more meaningful life because every action that they take serves a greater purpose to their existence. Whereas crunching out numbers in Excel spreadsheets doesn't have that same connection, right? To like, oh, I've ensured the survival of my tribe for the next week by finding this invaluable resources in the jungle, right? Um, but whether they're happier, you know, I don't know if you ask them, like, do you want to, you know, have this medication that's going to save your life? Do you want to have unlimited food? <laughs> like, you know, to some extent, I mean, they, they, they probably would want to take that, but yeah, I, I don't want to really yeah. answer the question. Like. Are they happier in that scenario, right? Like, Do they have more meaning than us? And also, I imagine if you ask the question of a Sentinelese Islander, what is the meaning to life? I mean, the answer is probably remarkably different from what somebody in you know a major metropolitan area in the United States would tell you. They would probably define it differently. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to like romanticize, you know, noble savagery or like whatever that concept is, you know, like the noble struggle of, of primal existence. Um, but no, I mean, it's very fair to ask the question of like, who's going to have a more meaningful life in that scenario? And e- even happiness. I mean, if you're, if you're in a, uh, if you have a tight bond with all your tribe members and every night you gather around the fire, you guys, you know, dance, tell stories, whatever, like, I mean, is that, c- c- could we say that is a more even a more, not just a meaningful, but a happier life than, you know, happy until, you know, you get some disease and die, <laughs> but like, at least we're, at least in some sense, happier than, um, 
the life of someone maybe who's just absolutely living in his New York, uh, you know, in his Manhattan apartment by himself and like going, dragging himself to work barely every day. And then like, I don't know, eating fucking fast food or, I mean, like, can, can, can you not say that that's a better life, even if it is riddled with much more suffering? And like we talked about, there's a connection between suffering and meaning. Well, let me ask you this question. Um, you know, we, we have a pretty large uh, homeless crisis in our country. You know? I thought you were going to say we have, we have a pretty large audience. Yes. Uh, I think we have two listeners. One of them is me. One of them is you. And your dad. <laughs> we're good. We had 14 downloads on the first episode. Interesting. I don't know from where. but uh, That's fucking crazy. We've only it's the, it's the, it's the FBI uh, downloading our episodes. But what I was going to say is, is we have fairly large, a fairly large homeless community here in, in, in our city. Um, sometimes, you know, we have big homeless encampments that we can see, like, on the sides of highways or, or major intersections. Is that a happy existence? Is that a meaningful existence? Because like, you take away... You know, you use the example of the dissatisfied schmuck sitting in his Manhattan apartment, which I imagine if he has an apartment in Manhattan, he's probably not doing too terrible. But, you know, in this schmuck living in, an, in this uh, symbolic city, living in an apartment, going to work, coming home, he's in debt, he has to worry about medical bills, like all these things, right? In theory, being homeless, you take away all of those worries, right? It becomes very much... Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's only looking at it from a very narrow perspective because, you know, part of human nature is also the, you know, the, the tendency to compare yourself to others. And if you're homeless, you're at the bottom of society. And so I if think you're choosing to internalize and define your life by the terms that's if, that society. Unless you've created a very well-sealed delusion that this is you've chosen to be homeless uh, very specifically, you could have been anything, but you chose to be homeless and you right. created this as a rejection of society. If you yeah. created this grand illusion and you are totally sold on this, that's one thing. Right. But I think most homeless people are not necessarily homeless by choice. By choice. Okay, fine. Let me let me take. Okay, next up from homeless, Amish. <laughs> Maybe not. But Amish is no. Amish is a good example. Right, because that is, that is. I almost a, said Hamish. By the way, is that like the Arabic Amish people? Hamish? We need to ask uh, our Arabic friend, our one Arabic friend that we have. Who, G- you know, he's, he's out of country? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, who knows what he's doing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll see. Uh, Hopefully he gets back. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, I don't know much. fascinated by Amish lifestyles, especially here in the Midwest, and we have a lot of Amish communities in the area. But in, in essence, it is, a aside for, from um, the religious practice and the kind of the historical cultural elements that the Amish community has, the roots, right? Um, it is a rejection of certain um, modern-day comforts or modern-day necessities because of their interpretation of what, holy shit, drives meaning, Right. You know, the reason why, I mean, I mean, I think from what I can tell, like certain Amish communities differ from others in terms of how conservative they are. But let's say we take the most conservative, most by the book Amish settlement. They most likely won't have smartphones. Um, you know, maybe they'll have a truck, but they'll try to use, you know, carriages and horses for as much transportation. But maybe what's a commonality is that they rely on themselves to, to build their homes, to you know, raise as much of their own food. 
that's a different interpretation of meaning, you know? If somebody, you know, an Amish family is probably concerned with very similar things we're concerned with, you know, if we have families to, to feed our children, to make sure they're raised in, in a certain stability and whatnot. But there is also a completely different path that's taken, right? Because there is less concern with um, social media, with maybe immediate material possessions, the latest pair of Yeezys and whatnot. Yeah, right? and, and you can say maybe they don't really need social media when their socializing occurs in person in such a consistent manner because right. of the strong community that they have, right? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, th this also touches on, you know, because the Amish are, I mean, they're religious. And yeah. so this, this this kind of tackles the issue of the, the grandest of all delusions, right? Religion. Uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so... The, the level of delusion found in religion, I mean, you think about why religion has been so, I don't know, prosperous in, in human societies and has been a part of human societies, even if it's not like a, a deity-based religion, but some form of like, um, I don't know, supernatural beliefs about the afterlife or death, you know, all these things that have such a strong... Um, I don't know, adherence to human culture, since the advent of human culture, um, you have to wonder like, okay, what's the utility of that, right? And as we discussed, the utility is, I mean, it could be multiple things, right? Like one is you don't think as much about your mortality or death. Like there's a strong utility in that it allows you to be more focused on your day to day. Uh, there's also the utility in um, having a stronger community, having consistent beliefs among your, you know, tribe members and, um, and all of those things. Uh, and, and also having a consistent belief system, it just reduces, a, you know, the mental burden of dealing with all the questions of life, right? I mean, again, it just goes back to the notion of like being able to focus on the things that are actually most necessary for survival because you could spend your days thinking about what's why do i exist mm -hmm. what happens after i die mm -hmm. holy shit i'm gonna die <laughs> you know uh and instead of pondering those questions which have zero evolutionary utility those are taken care of for you you can do other things now i, I think the you know historically speaking or like anthropologically speaking the greatest utility in religion is simply um, creating a strong community with consistent beliefs. I mean, that is just obvious advantages over a a community that isn't as consistent in what they believe, isn't doesn't have the same conviction in their beliefs. Um, also, you you know, the notion of like there being an afterlife can allow for for martyrs and. Uh, I mean, it's just, you know, the list of benefits are endless. You know, uh, it, but I also think that, you know, in our, um, in, in our country, um, which maybe doesn't have as much support systems immediately provided by the government, let's talk about maybe for the elderly, for instance, right? Uh, I was just listening to a podcast on the way here 
um, it, it's kind of historical podcast, but the banter beforehand, um, the, the two hosts, um, I think they're both Jewish and they're talking about kind of the conflict they have with their parents. The parents are more observant. They're not, you know, and they're, you know, discussing about fasting, um, uh, and, and if they're going to be fasting or not. But one of the points that was made is that, um, the, the host's uh, mother in her old age became more religious, not because of a sense of impending death, but because the synagogue provided a consistent form of social interaction for somebody who can no longer drive, can no longer, um, you know, live an independent life for all intents and purposes, basically locked down in a house. Right. But on a weekly basis, she can go to synagogue, she can participate in groups. She has people to talk to. She has people she knows consistently. So, you know, religion also, to your point, provides that level of, of, of community and engagement and takes away from the loneliness. I think that a lot of us experience in, in our day and age. Right. And maybe that's what religion is. Even if you don't buy, you know, whatever is written in the book, you get to go and hang out with some people every week, you know, and maybe that is the utility of, you know, I, I think it's kind of a, a brief tangent, but I love uh, reading about case studies where the influence of church has been abolished from certain states. Um, for instance, uh, in the 30s, 1930s, um, right before the Spanish Civil War kicked off, when the Spanish Republic came into power, uh, you know, they won elections and they started dismantling a lot of the old monarchist traditions. One of the first things they got rid of is the influence in church and society. So they took the role out of church, out of education, out of, you know, civic organization. But all of a sudden they realized that you know, society became very, very, very fragile because the church provided a lot of the services and the uh, systems that people needed to, to, to survive. You know, the government wasn't funding education, but all of a sudden the church stepped in and provided schooling. So what I'm saying is I think maybe there are certain utilitarian things that religion brings to our lives. No, absolutely it does. And, and this is, I think this is actually a topic I had in mind for another podcast. It, it was... How do we, as you know, as, as we're becoming a more secular society, how do we try to retain some of the benefits that religion provided without the delusion? Is that even possible, mm -hmm. right? And, and and I think we can talk about this, you know, yeah. several hours. I mean, this, right. this is a, I think this is actually a very interesting issue and and one that like not many people are really discussing, like. Religion, you know, speaking of meaning, like provided people with a lot of meaning in their lives as well. And as you become a more secular society, you know, atheism is not a any really belief system, right? It's just, okay, I just don't believe in a God. That's not really a system of anything. That's just a lack of belief in the entity. And so, like, how did these more atheistic societies address this issue of meaning? Um, and, and like, maybe we have to look at examples in Scandinavian countries where they're doing way better than religious countries, you know, in, in terms of their levels of happiness and meaning. Right. So like, there's clearly some ways we can mitigate the, the disadvantage of having a secular society right. because it's not just the pros of like, oh, we're, you know, pro science we're we're, you know, more free. We don't have these, um, very coarse of delusions about gender roles or, or whatever it is, right? That the negative, the, you know, the list of negatives to religion, you know, are at least as long as the, the list of positives that mm -hmm, come from religion. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. but how, how do secular societies kind of address the hole that, the void that religion leaves in society? That That is something that, you know, 
the the liberal hive mind <laughs> that the liberals have not been able to really discuss because it's very anti-religion, right? It, it, it's all about, well, really, they just, they love to shit on Christianity, but not much is said about Islam, right? Or I mean, Buddhism. Or Hinduism. Right. Um, Scientology. Scientology, well, that's... That should be open game for everyone. <laughs> but but, but you, you, you get what I'm saying? Like, there, there, there has been a lot of criticism of religion without really taking into consideration, like, what happens to societies when they aren't religious, when they don't have these grand illusions, right? Mm -hmm. Because as we've discussed, that seems to be you know, at least one way to achieve a more meaningful existence. And so taking away this source of meaning, well, you've got to, you've got to counter that in some way. So that's, that's something we should definitely discuss on another podcast. On another I do one. want to circle back to your point about the Amish people though. <laughs> uh, you were talking about, well, not just Amish people, but you were talking about, you know, having a case study uh, and a, or a control group, a control group right? Yeah. And, I was thinking back to, uh, this was something we had discussed several months ago, but it was, oh, back in the day when uh, America was being conquered by the white people and the Native Americans, um, you know, the, the, there was obviously a lot of conflict back and forth between Native Americans and uh, as... Um, the white people were moving more and more inland and, you know, encountering the different tribes. They were talking about how some of the, some of the white people who were captured by the Native Americans when they were released in like prisoner exchanges between like, you know, the tribe and, and you know, some whatever state or group or I don't know what whatever uh, <laughs> whatever fucking people. <laughs> what what were the people called in the? I mean, what were they called? Like the what people the, are you talking about? The conquest or conquistadors? Not the conquistadors, Con but like the colon colon just colonists. The colonizers. Yeah, colonists. The colonists. Yeah. The colonists. Why why was I unable? The to pilgrims, but that's the like pilgrims. that's limited to like one region. Yeah. The, co the colonists, right? The yeah. conflict between the Native Americans and the colonists. Right. Um, why were the colonists who were released in these prisoner exchanges from the Native American tribes, why were they wanting to go back to the Native American tribes? Was it all of them or was it just a couple? Like, I, mean, these, I mean, these. I don't know how verified these stories are, but this is something that was written down uh, I have to find the, the reference for this, but I'd be curious to know, like, what that... Right. What the, I mean, like, what does that imply about the meaningful existence that the Native Americans had versus what the, the colonists... And, I mean, they're also coming from, like, a very rigid religious... Uh, I mean, I, I bet it kind of sucked to be a colonist in, in the... on the North American continent in, like, the sure. 17th century, right? You didn't know what the fuck you were doing. You know, half your people probably died. Um, you know, you're trying to figure out what roots to eat. 
that just sucks. And all of a sudden you get captured by a tribe. They just hang out. You know, they have some structure to their society. Their society is more permissible and forgiving, at least from like some of the tribes that were populating the Eastern seaboard at the time. Right. I think from what I've read, they're a little bit more egalitarian. Maybe it's just like a, you know, an easier way of life, a more just way of life. There wasn't this kind of like constant like Christian Protestant guilt that you're, you're always smacking. You, you make a good point though. Like, you know, we're talking about a uh, people from a specific culture yeah. in a very specific dynamic. These were also English people and right. English people are inherently self-loathing. There was a bunch of Italian colonizers like they would have been chill. Yeah. But, but it speaks to the complexity of social behavior right? yeah. and and you know people shit on sociology as a field all the time because you know, there's like this replication crisis with, with with all the studies and 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 whatnot but the truth is sociology is the most complicated in my opinion the most complicated field in all of science because trying to understand and model and predict human behavior not just like of a single individual, but but a multiple like groups of people and all the interactions that happen, not between the individuals, but between, but also when you factor in like the culture itself, like this this abstract layer of what is culture, right? Mm-hmm. Like that is way harder than say predicting what the weather is going to be, and we can't do that, you know, beyond couple of days accuracy mm-hmm. right i mean you can't even do that sometimes when it's gonna rain in the evening yeah, they fuck it so, up here all the time man. and that's a, you know that is a physical system right that is kind of like a fixed physical system where the parameters are easier to dissect okay trying to dissect the parameters involved in social interactions I mean, you would need, I mean, you would need some sort of insane AI with unbelievable computational power to even get anywhere near trying to predict human behavior. I think we'd get really, uh, we're going to be in trouble when the AI starts asking what the meaning of life is. That, that is going to be terrifying. Terrifying. We're almost there too. Rational thinking AI. I mean... Just a couple of algorithms away. Well, you know, it's we have a hard time like perceiving or digesting exponential growth, right? I mean, <laughs> AI like that, that scary AI could be just it could be ten years away. It may not seem like it because right now we're like, oh, okay, it's still so far away. They're still so stupid. They still can't do anything, but could be closer than we think i mean that's the problem with exponential growth like it's hard to anticipate and it's like it's accumulating too right? yeah the more data that's pumped into algorithms the smarter exactly. these algorithms get i think but even like five years ago everybody's making fun of was like the microsoft ai like that started like the twitter tweet tweeting yeah. out like neo-nazi yeah. bullshit but i mean even that's been i imagine refined to a certain extent now that yeah, um, exponential growth is, I think, precisely as you described it. Like, it, it's impossible for us to comprehend, and we do still think of things in like a linear level, at an incremental level. But the uh, the most important developments are happening right now with the coding and slow deployment and the continuous education of AI. 
I mean, if you're talking like in five years, we're going to have AI that's governing like the insurance market, for instance, right? That's going to be determining insurance policy rates based off of like random accumulations of data. That in itself is a pretty advanced step. Think about where in 10 years where it's going to get, right? So I'm telling you, Amish by 2030 is, is, uh, is my trajectory. Creating fake Amish societies where people have to pay to participate in for like a month. Great, great business idea. Uh, we would get a lot of tech bros. Uh, corporate retreats where exactly. you simulate an Amish way of life for a week. Or, or better yet, you simulate uh, 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 maybe an old like you know Native American. Yeah. Oh my tribe or, or or you go back even farther you, you you simulate like a stone age human setting can you imagine i mean i think that you have to create your own stone tools you have to hunt like i don't know they'll, they'll like put in some rabbits that run around you have to hunt them it's basically just like an escape room you just take it to the next level with a few like you know with venture capital money you could really turn this into you know, corporate team bonding experience. Or like a, eventually you get to the point where it's like it goes beyond that where you have like more creative um, settings or environments like Hunger Games. <laughs> I mean. I think we are probably pretty close to watching interns fight to the death. Interns? Interns, yeah. You want to work at Google? <laughs> Fucking prove it. I think we end the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was good. That was good. Yeah, that was good. I, fu- I fucked up on the colonists part. I completely... I was like, I, I was like, what time period was this even? Was this like during the conquistadors? Or was Seems like the, only yesterday. It had to have been the, the colonists, but I, yeah, I didn't even know the right word. Hey, you know... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clip that. No, don't clip it because it, show, it, it shows like a... a naive tier of education that you have like you totally like pinpointed like native american tribes and then like the colonizers is what you fucked up you did like a reverse like western supremacy <laughs> so if anything you you uh you showed honor to the true uh to the true inheritors of this land that is true that's that is true that is a quite a delusion that you have there man i am i'm swimming in delusions oh shit we haven't stopped. <laughs> anyways thank you for joining us uh, we look forward to talking to you again in the future. Nivan, any final words? Uh, that's all, folks. Zing!